Here will be in Ephesians um, chapter 1, uh, starting um, at verse um, 11. We're going to be at 11 through 14 this morning. And, and where we've been is this incredible starting at verse 3, working all the way down to verse 14, this uh, thing that we've called the, this longest sentence really in Scripture, going over some 200 words um, in the Greek, where Paul here, starting in verse 3, he just bursts out in praise. He, he bursts out in doxology with extravagant praise for how great God is and the incredible blessings uh, that, that he brings to us. Uh, we, we've seen um, how incredibly blessed we are um, in past weeks uh, by the Father. The Father who has chosen us, who, who predestined us before the foundation of the world, who has adopted us into his family. We, we've seen how incredibly blessed we are by the Son, as we did last week. Uh, how blessed we are by him and being redeemed by his blood. How he has, has lavished his grace upon us, his forgiveness upon us. Um, this morning, what we'll see primarily, not completely, but we, we will see how incredibly blessed we are by the third person of the Trinity, uh, Paul doesn't just rejoice in uh, how the Father is at work and, and how the Son is at work. He also rejoices in how Holy Spirit is at work. So let's read. I'm going to read the whole of this sentence starting back at verse 3, and we're going to focus on uh, verses uh, 11 through 14. Let's hear God's word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us and the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of the truth of the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for the wonder of the grace that has come to us, that you have bestowed upon us would you increase our wonder in the good news of the gospel? This morning we pray, open our eyes to see what you have before us in your word this day. Move in us, apply your word to our hearts, Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we get started this morning, we are going to talk about the Holy Spirit, but before we can turn to him, Paul, starting in verse 11, he returns to a theme that we saw two weeks ago regarding God's sovereignty. In fact, some have called it, uh, these verses 11 and 12, some of the strongest language we in fact have in all of Scripture concerning God's sovereignty, so we can't just skip over it uh, this morning. Some of you may, may know uh, the name William Carey, 
um, often known as father of modern missions, went to India. One of the things that he did in India uh, was he spent a lot of his time, a lot of his time, trying to translate the Bible into over a dozen languages in India. After about 20 years of that work, uh, that, the, the, the building that, that was both the printing plant that, that housed everything, that housed all those manuscripts and everything uh, from all that translation work went up in flames. 20 years of work, gone like that. Kerry wrote to a friend, he wrote this, the ground must be labored over again, he says, talking about like this work has to be reproduced, we just need to do it again, but we, he says, are not discouraged. We have all been supported under the affliction and preserved from discouragement. To me, the consideration of the divine sovereignty and wisdom has been very supporting. He says, in the midst of all this that happened, it's God's sovereignty that has brought me comfort. He said, I preached uh, just uh, this past Lord's Day from Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. And there he said, uh, he dwelt on two ideas. The first, God has a sovereign right to dispose of us as he pleases. And then secondly, we ought to acquiesce in all that God does with us and to us. You see, in the moment of great difficulty, Carrie, instead of despairing, he found great hope in God's sovereignty. That's where he found encouragement. And what does Paul tell us in verse 11? He says, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Here Paul speaks of the counsel of his will. He, he returns to similar thoughts that he had back in verse 4 and verse 5 where he talks about us being predestined according to the purpose of his will. But now he expands on this. He expands beyond just predestination, beyond just him choosing a people, and he says something more, doesn't he? He says that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Not most things, not some things, not the things that we like, but all things. He's sovereign. He rules over all. Nothing comes as a surprise. It's all according to his great plan. And, and we hear that, and sometimes what, what do we ask? We ask, why? Why then this way? We, we don't understand it, and we, we don't have time to completely unpack that question this morning. But I just want to give us two examples from the Bible that may be helpful in digesting it. You remember Joseph in Genesis, right? Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. It's a great horror. It's a terrible thing that took place there, right? And, and he suffered as a result of what his brothers did to him. And, and later on, he would find himself wrongly thrown into prison, right? He, he suffered much. But you remember, maybe you even have memorized those words that he says to his brothers when his brothers finally come because they are in need, right? Because there's a famine going on. What does he say? He says, as for you, you meant evil against me. He doesn't mince words. What his brothers did was an evil act. It was a bad thing that they did. They shouldn't have done what they did, what you meant for evil <laughs> against me. But God meant it for good to bring it back, uh, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Where does Joseph rest where did he learn to rest through that situation? He, he learned to rest in God's sovereignty that ultimately God is in control, that ultimately he is working all things to the counsel of his will and that his will is good. 
I was also, in thinking about this, just reminded, you know, just a few weeks ago we celebrated Good Friday, and, and we read from Luke. And in Luke uh, 23, 49, we, we read this. After Jesus breathed his last breath, we read this, all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from a distance stood at a distance watching these things. Put yourself in their shoes for just a moment. They've just seen the horror of the cross, the death of Jesus Christ. They see no goodness there. Their hope is dashed. All they see is horror, the greatest horror, in fact, that this world has ever known up to until that moment. The Son of God has just been killed. But yet, what did they come to learn just a few days later? that what they thought, and what was rightfully a great horror on that day, a few days later they would also learn was the greatest thing that their eyes had ever, ever seen. That thing that we, 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 don't, we now call Good Friday, right? That, that, that what was evil turns good, and, and those words of, of that old psalm are true. Amazing love, how can it be? that thou, my God, shouldst die for me. It's a wonderful blessing. It was, it was a horror to those first people watching it, and yet one of the most incredible things that had ever taken place is as God brings together his divine sovereignty um, into our lives. That, 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 and it causes Paul, what, what does Paul have to say about this later in Galatians? Far be it from me to boast except in what? In the cross of Jesus Christ. That this thing that was so terrible becomes a thing of glory. That's how God, God works these things together. Now, we can't always explain it. We, we can't always make sense of it. We may not always understand why God is working out things the way that he is. And often it's very painful in the midst of it. It was very painful for Jesus' disciples, for those women as they are watching what happened to Jesus. But God is perfectly, and don't miss it, perfectly playing out his will. And it's for a purpose. We read that in, in verse 12, so that, so that we who are the, the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. He, he's, he's working out big things. Now, we need to say something about that word we. Who, who, who is the we? Likely here, Paul is talking about Jewish believers, the, the first ones to come to faith in Christ. And, and in verse 13 and 14, we're going to see him talk about you, which is he's likely talking about Gentile believers, right? He talks about he talks about our inheritance, the we, and then he talks about their inheritance. But really, the point that he's trying to make and where he's trying to go with this is that the inheritance is one and the same. He's not creating here two different peoples, okay? There are no second-class citizens in the kingdom. All get the same inheritance is going to be his ultimate point. But how do all these things work? What is their final purpose? Did you see that at the end of verse 12? What does he say? To the praise of his glory. That's how he's working these things together. Ultimately, to the praise of his glory. Now, there's parts of us that sometimes bristle with that a lot because I think we, we, we like our own glory, don't we? We pursue our own glory a lot. But there's something amazing in these words, and I think we miss. And, and uh, Sinclair Ferguson helps us there. He, he says this, but this glory, God's glory and his seeking after his glory, this glory is not the enemy of our good. Did you hear that? God's glory is not the enemy of our good. Sometimes that's how we line things up, right? We, we line up God's will versus our will. And we think they clash with each other. But in fact, what God does is he pursues his own glory in such a way that he simultaneously 
brings his people most blessing. His pleasure and our blessing are marriage partners. Have you ever thought about it that way? That, that what God is trying to, to work out and we, we think it's painful, it's, it's for our good. What brings most glory in him is what is good for us, in fact. It's hard to believe it sometimes as we pursue our own glory. But we need to be reminded that his glory is really what's ultimately best for us. Now, Paul then goes on to tell us about not, not just that the Father is at work in our salvation, and, and, not, and not just the Son, but that also Holy Spirit is very much at work in our salvation. Many of you have probably seen pawn stars at some point or another, or, or a show similar, right? You know, people, they bring in these treasured possessions of their family, right? And, and they think it's worth like twenty, fifty thousand, hundred thousand dollars $100,000, right? And, and they're convinced, and then they bring in the expert, and the expert tells them what? Yeah, it's a fake. It's a forgery. It's not really worth that much. It's, it's, it's maybe worth 500 bucks, and the person is crushed because it's a fake, and it's not real. Um, what Paul goes on to tell us here in verses 13 and 14 is how we can know how we can have confidence that we are the real deal, if you will, um, that we really are those who are in Christ. Look at verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, he says. He says that, that if you're in Christ, that if you've had faith in Christ, that what? You've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean? I think first we maybe need to say something about Holy Spirit real quick. Um, just the other day, I was going through a driveway, and it happened to be Star Wars Day. Um, the girl had, you know, her hair was done up like Princess Leia. And as I was driving off, she said, may the fourth be with you. May the fourth be with you, right? Which is a play on from Star Wars. May the force be with you, right? And as I was thinking about our thoughts on the Holy Spirit, I think that's sometimes kind of how we think about Holy Spirit is that he's like this force out there, and we can't quite grasp him, and, and we speak of him that way. Sometimes we, we think of Holy Spirit as, as an it. We ask the question, what is the Holy Spirit instead of who? You understand those are two different questions. And we, we need to be asking the question, who is he? He's... He, He's not an it. He's a person, the third person of the Trinity, just as actively involved in our, the work of our salvation as the, the Father and the Son. He is a person, not a thing. You know, you, you guys may have noticed, uh, and I've had questions before about this, that, that often I just say Holy Spirit, and I don't say the Holy Spirit, Okay. And I go back and forth, and you'll hear me say both of them this morning. You may say, well, why do you do that? And I do that for myself, but hopefully maybe for, for you as well, to help you to, to be reminded that the Holy Spirit is not an it. It's, it's not a thing. It's, he's a person. And we call out to the Father, right? We don't just call him the Father all the time. Jesus is a person. Holy Spirit is a person, and it's okay to address him like that. He is one of the three persons of the Godhead 
one being, you know, God's one being, right? There's one God, but in three persons, okay? And that's why Paul in chapter four, we'll we'll get there in quite a few weeks, but we'll eventually get there. What what does Paul say? And, And do not what? Grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Why should we worry about grieving? You wouldn't worry about grieving an it, right? Worry about grieving a person. We grieve the Holy Spirit, the one who lives in us when we go on sinning. We'll get there in a few weeks. So Paul talks about what? He says, you're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. What does that mean to be sealed? It's kind of strange language. I mean, what is a seal? We, we still use seals today in some ways or another. Like, if you ever get into something notarized, you know, it's got to be, like, sealed. And, and what is the reason? It's to authenticate the document. In their day, they would do similar things. A lot of people would have rings that would have some sort of insignia on it that was just theirs. And, and so they would stamp a document with, with wax, right? Or, or, or if you had an envelope, a letter that you were writing, you would seal it and you would close it with, with that to, to mark, this is mine, right? This is my letter, and anybody who opens it except for the person it's going to, you, you, you know, you've just violated something, right? Um, or, or animals um, would be sealed, right? You know, th- these days we do, it seems to be done more with plastic little tags on their ears or something, you know, if you think of cows out in the pasture. Um, but, you know, actually branded, actually sealed, marking what? Ownership. Um, some of you, you may have read Pilgrim's Progress at some point. And th- there's a point kind of close to the beginning, where Christian comes to the cross, okay? He comes to the cross, and what happens, his, his burdens are just like completely relieved and taken away. It's a picture of him coming to faith in Christ, right? He, and his burdens are just relieved, and then what happens, the three shining ones come to him, and, and one of them says, your sins are forgiven, okay? Then another one comes and, and takes off his rags, and he puts on like new clothes, right? Nice clothes, and the third one comes and gives him a parchment and also marks him, gives him a mark on his forehead. What's going on there? You know, it's incredible. It's a beautiful picture because, because what happens to Christian, Christian's the character there, Pilgrim's Progress, if I didn't already say that. What happens to him, but he is clothed in what? Righteous robes as we, when we come to faith in Christ, are, are clothed in the righteous robes of Christ as we're justified, right? And, and given the perfect righteousness of Christ, he's, he's given a scroll, a scroll that he's going to take out as he's on his journeys to do what? To remind himself of the good news of the gospel, the good news of what's been done for him. And then what? That third thing takes place where he's marked on the forehead. He's sealed in some versions, there's actually a footnote to, to, to this passage from Ephesians. This is, this is what John Bunyan was referring to, this sealing that takes place with the Holy, Holy Spirit. Now, we need to make clear when the sealing takes place. And our passage tells us, right, what does it say? When is the location? When you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. We receive Holy Spirit. We're sealed with Holy Spirit when we first believe. It's an aspect, if you will, of that incredible saving event, that time where we're we're justified, we're adopted. We are sealed at that moment. It's incredible. Now, why? And what does this really mean? Why are we sealed? Uh, Paul, um, in 2 Corinthians, also talks about this, this idea of being sealed. And, and, and in the context of that, he, he says this in verse 3 of chapter 3. He says, and you show that you 
are a letter from Christ delivered by us. We don't usually think of ourselves as letters, but, but here that's the, the picture that, that Paul is painting. Written not with ink, but with what? The spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. He, he's wanting us to have a picture here. A picture, you know, we talk about letters, and letters were often what? They, they, obviously written on, and Holy Spirit's writing on them, but Holy Spirit also what? Seals. Seals that letter. Um, one author puts it this way, Christians, as, as Christians, we're living copies of God's covenant, so to speak, written by the, the, the incredible work, the regenerating work and sanctifying work of the Spirit. Sealing, he says, it's like writing, but the seal is the finishing touch, right? The, the, the finishing touch, the thing that goes on it to what? To authenticate it to show that it's, it's really whose it says it is. And so when we speak of being sealed with Holy Spirit, what we're saying is, is that Holy Spirit is attesting that we are his, that we really are, that that is our identified. He, he's certifying, if you will, that, that verse 7 is true of us, that we have redemption through his blood, that that's truly taken place. He authenticates it. It secures us. Don't miss this, if, if you are sealed with the Holy Spirit, it can never be removed. It can never be taken away. If you have truly been sealed with Holy Spirit, it can never be snatched away. You, you, if you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, you are as secure in Christ at this moment as are the saints in heaven right now. And the wonder is that it's not like Holy Spirit comes and, you know, he has one of those, like, notarizing things or something, you know, and, and he pinches, you know. It's not like he, he sticks us in there and, like, crimps the thing down on us, and now we are sealed with Holy Spirit seal, okay? And it says property of, uh, of Yahweh or Holy Spirit. You know, it, it, that's not what happens. Do, do you see what our text says? That's not what our text says. We, we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit himself is the seal, okay? He's not sealing us. He is the seal. And, and so he is he's present in our lives, and, and it's in fact that presence in our life that authenticates us. It's his presence in our life that secures us. We, we are indwelt, you see, by the Holy Spirit. And that indwelling, what does it do? It should be reminding you and I of who we really are. And Holy Spirit should be doing that regularly. And how does Holy Spirit do that? Sometimes I think, well, well, we think, oh, I've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, so now I can just sit in my chair, and God's going to can now do his work. Holy Spirit, get to work. Well, that, that's not exactly how it works. How does Holy Spirit work? Okay, we're sealed. He, he's now in us. How, how does he work? He, he works through the very means which God has given to us. As we hear the word preached, maybe even this morning, as we read the scriptures, as we pray, as we participate in the life and body of the church, as we enjoy the sacraments, what happens is, what is Holy Spirit doing? He's at work. At work on our hearts, illuminating them more and more to the truths of the gospel, transforming, changing us more and more through those incredible means of grace which God has provided for us. That's how we change, and that's how Holy Spirit is at work on us. And so he seals us, he, he, and his, his stamp upon us, it, it stamps us that, that we are the property of our great God. 
that we are his, that we are his possession. And Holy Spirit will work in us, preserving us to the very end. Okay. Now, God, Holy Spirit preserves us. That, that doesn't mean, though, that, you know, we might think, well, does that mean I'm going to no longer struggle? Or if I'm, if I'm struggling at all, therefore, I've not been sealed with the Holy Spirit. No, Christians do struggle in their life, right? But if you have Holy Spirit, what does he do? He reminds you of it, doesn't he? If you're a believer, you know what I'm talking about. You know the conviction that comes as a result of your sin. You know what happens when you find yourself off in that faraway place in the far country, if you will. And Holy Spirit begins to work, reminding you of your sin, convicting you of it. That's Holy Spirit at work within you, calling you back. I'd encourage you, if if Holy Spirit's calling you back, listen to him. If not, it gets more painful usually. And it gets more painful. But if you're really his, and you've really been sealed with the Holy Spirit, he will bring you back. He is at work doing it. Don't miss it. Folks, there's incredible blessings that come from being sealed with Holy Spirit. One, one Puritan put it this way. As, as faith honors God, so God honors faith with a superadded seal, a confirmation. That's the Holy Spirit. This produces spiritual ravishings, which are the very beginning of heaven, so that the Christian is in heaven before his time. It's part of what the Holy Spirit does as he's within us. We begin to experience just a peace, just a, just a taste of that which awaits us. So that Paul's going to even talk about in a few weeks about, about how we're even right now seated in the heavenly places and, and, and with Holy Spirit at work in us, we can at moments and at times actually know and, and see that. So Holy Spirit seals us in this credible way. And so if, you are, if you've come to faith in Christ, if you truly come to faith in Christ, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And you can take great confidence in that, even when it doesn't always feel like it, that you have truly been sealed. And it's not just that. He, he's not just this, the seal. Also continuing in verse 14, and I, I'm going to I want to use the NIV here because I think it does a little bit better job of translating. And in fact, if you have an ESV, you'll see a little footnote that kind of gives something similar to how the NIV does it. But Paul goes on to say this, who is, and that's talking about the Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So not only is it seal, Paul, Paul tells us that Holy Spirit is a guarantee you know, I've come to start, there's a particular brand of socks that I've come to like. And they say this, that they are unconditionally guaranteed for life. That's a pretty bold statement. If these aren't the longest lasting socks you've ever owned, you can return them to us for another pair. No receipts needed, just the pair in question. That's a really good guarantee. You scroll just a little bit farther down their page, and then they say things that we don't cover. So there's a few exceptions to this incredible guarantee. Now, it's a, still a good guarantee. I, I think they're appropriate to say the things that they are because basically what they say is we don't guarantee when you use your socks for a purpose what it, which it wasn't meant. So like if you start using your, your, your sock as a chew toy for your dog, 
You know, we're not going to cover that. That's not the purpose it's meant. If you burn it in the fire, like, you're not supposed to do that, so we're not going to cover that. If you lose it in the laundry, it's still somewhere in your house. I mean, you need to find it, right? But regardless, I mean, that's really their only exceptions. That's a pretty good, good guarantee, right? But it still comes with some exceptions. What, what Paul is talking about here is that Holy Spirit is a guarantee without any exceptions. There are no exceptions. He's, he's the guarantee. He's the, you could also translate it like pledge or um, deposit or like earnest money. Like you think if you, if you purchased a house before and you have to put down your earnest money and if you walk away, what happens? So does your earnest money. Now, of course, there's also all sorts of things in the contract where you can potentially get that money back. So this is unlike that in, in this case. But I hope you understand the incredible thing. Whenever it says that Holy Spirit is, our, is the guarantee, it's, it's not as though God isn't like putting down a bunch of money on us that he'll lose if he doesn't keep his promise to us. What is he doing? He's putting down himself as the guarantee. You catch that? Holy Spirit is the guarantee. God himself is the guarantee that he is really going to fulfill the promises that he has made to us in Christ Jesus. And what are those things? A guarantee of what? A a guarantee of of this incredible inheritance that comes to us, right? Uh, The inheritance that's the same for the Jewish converts, the Gentile converts, the incredible riches that we have as heirs, as sons and daughters of our great God. And Holy Spirit guarantees it guarantees that things are going to come to fruition until, as we read, until the redemption of those who are God's possession. Holy Spirit is is meant to be for you and I an assurance of the inheritance that that we will fully get when Christ returns, right? We we get some of the blessings of it now, and you and I, we, we probably all would wish we get more blessings from it right now, right? But we do receive blessings from it right now. But what are we going to have in the future? We're going to have even more. But don't miss the blessings that we do have now. What kind of blessings do we have? We have the incredible foretaste right now as we're reminded that right now we are clothed in those righteous robes, as I mentioned a little earlier, that we have truly been justified. That we're reminded of that incredible good news and we're given a foretaste even that we are adopted into the family of God. And elsewhere, what does Paul say Holy Spirit does? What does he testify in our heart? What, is, what, is he, what does he speak kind of over and over in our heart to cry out what? Abba, Father. Holy Spirit is at work if you're sealed with him. <laughs> He is at work in your heart doing what? Crying out, Abba, Father, learning to cry out those words, learning to understand your adoption, your sonship. It's amazing work that he is doing. And God will complete it, won't he? He's put himself down on the line as the payment. Okay? He's put himself down as the deposit. And note what it also says. What is he seeking to acquire? But it's It's God's possession. That's where the ESV gets it a little wrong here. 
It's not some vague them. He, he's doing this for, to possess us, to possess his people, those who, whom he's already chosen to be his children, adopted into his family. Now, we've been talking about this for a while, maybe, maybe too long for, for some of you this morning. Um, okay, Holy Spirit is, is our seal. He's our guarantee seems like a whole lot of just theology and head stuff and it just seems, it can seem kind of vague, can it? And I get that. So just think for a moment with me. And I think I know your answers because I know my answers. Do you ever feel like you can't match up? <laughs> you can't be good enough, you know what I mean? Even your best, it's just, it just never seems to be enough. Do you ever worry and struggle that, I don't, I don't know if I have enough faith. I doubt too much. I struggle too much. And here's the problem. And what we need to, to work out in our hearts and understand, we have this terrible habit of thinking somehow that we, we can be our own authentication. That we can be our own guarantor, okay? That, that we can guarantee it ourselves. That, that somehow by, by working hard enough, by being good enough, that somehow it's going to be enough to guarantee our inheritance. We think that often, don't we? But do you hear what we're being told this morning, what the scriptures tell us? That no, you're, you're not the guarantee. The perfection or imperfections of your life is not the guarantee. He is. Holy Spirit is the guarantee. He's the down payment being laid down. He's the one who seals you. You can't do it to yourself. If anything, I, I hope you'll, you'll get that. Because we try so hard to think we can do it on our own. That, that we can be, that this final part, okay, it's wonderful uh, of all these things that God has done for us. But these last two verses, we think we got to somehow do ourselves in some way. We got to now be the authentication. We got to now go on and prove ourselves to be authentic. It's not our actions that prove ourselves to be authentic. It's Holy Spirit. And it's Holy Spirit's work for sure in us. Because what we need to do is we need to be at work allowing him to change us. Molding us more and more into the image of Jesus that doesn't mean, as I said earlier, that doesn't mean just sitting in the chair waiting for Holy Spirit to do his thing. Okay, Holy Spirit uses means. He, he uses incredible means of, of, of grace by, that we have by, by hearing the word, reading the word. Holy Spirit uses that to change us and to mold us. If, if you're not doing that, don't expect the Holy Spirit's going to be able to do his work. I, I, I mean, now Holy Spirit certainly can. But, but those are the ordinary, that's an ordinary means that, that, that Holy Spirit uses to transform, to change you. It's time in his word. Time in prayer. Time in the context of the church and the, enjoying the wonderful sacraments of the church and the Lord's Supper and our baptism. And we could go much farther, obviously, down those lines. Holy Spirit uses these means right now. If, you, if you've been authenticated, if, if you've been sealed would you allow Holy Spirit to work in you? Would you allow him to do his work of sanctifying you, of changing you more and more? And we can be confident 
we can be confident that he is going to complete the work that he has begun in us. Okay? Not that we can be confident that I'm going to complete the work that he, <laughs> that he began in us, but that he is going to do it. Will you allow him to do that? We allow him to be at work. We utilize the means which he's given us to help grow you. And, and get this, look, look at the very end of our passage. Ends this incredible sentence, verse 14. What do we read? What's the end of it all? To the praise of his glory. So I was thinking about this week, it, it hit me at some point that what is it right here that Paul is saying glorifies him, that glorifies our great God? Now, there are a multitude of things that we could speak of that glorify our great God. But what does he say right here glorifies our great God? What has he just gone through? He's just gone through the litany of the incredible ways in which you and I are blessed in our salvation. Did you catch that? Part of what brings him glory is the work that he is doing in us and has done in us. That that incredible saving work that, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have done, are doing in us, that is to the praise of his glory. That brings glory to God. Your salvation brings glory to him. Your adoption brings glory to him. That, that, that incredible redemption that came to us through Jesus Christ brings glory to him. The, the, the way in which you and I are sealed with the Holy Spirit brings glory to him. Isn't that amazing? That God is glorified through his saving of us and rescuing of us sinners. Now, as we close up, I, I want to just end with a couple of questions. And I, obviously that's often how I end sermons is with questions. I think we, that, you probably know then that I'm getting close to the end when I start asking a bunch of questions, right? Um, just in summarizing this, I, I just want to ask you a couple of questions. Do you know the incredible love of the Father? The incredible love of the Father, who, the one who, who, who predestined you, who, who chose you before the foundations of the world and adopted you into his family. Do you know the love of the Father? Do you know the love of the Son who redeemed you by the shedding of his blood for the forgiveness of your sins? Do, do, do you know the love of the Son who has lavished his, the riches of his grace upon us? Do you know the love of Holy Spirit who has sealed us with him, him, his very self, given him his very self as the guarantee that we are in Christ? Do you know the love this morning of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? That's what caused Paul to rejoice as he does from verse 3 to 14. Do you know the love of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for the riches of the blessings that come to us through our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
We thank you for your love, O Father. We thank you for your love, O Son. We thank you for your love, O Holy Spirit. We thank you that you have lavished us so richly. Would you help us to believe, to know the truth of it in our lives? Would you help us, um, particularly this morning, to know and even experience the truth of the sealing of the Holy Spirit in our life and the work that you are now doing in us? Would you help us to believe, we pray, in the matchless name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.